It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hi, welcome to another Throwbacks episode of the Gen X Replay podcast. This is Stephanie Watson, and here in Throwbacks, Frankie Hagen joins me to talk about a pop culture topic that heavily influenced us as Gen Xers. And while we center on that topic, we let the conversation flow to our broader Gen X experiences. And today, pretty excited, we welcome back our friend Peter Flahiff from the Daily Good podcast to talk about a singularly influential part of our childhood, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and the incomparable Fred Rogers himself. Welcome back, Peter. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's good to be back. <laughs> it's good to see you too, Frankie. How's it, how's it going? It's great. You know, Peter, when we were laying out topics that we were going to cover in this quarter, and we had already told you when we were going to talk about Mr. Rogers that we wanted you to come back for this one. This was oh, for yeah. sure. This was a given. And without getting into the world of politics, which I, I have to say, I admire how well you handle that in your own podcast, by the mm. way. Thank you. You know, you do a very nice job of, of handling those kind of issues. Uh, the world right now with the negativity and the, uh, the splits that have occurred in our society, you know, brought on by a COVID-19 world where we're splintered into smaller and smaller groups the impact of someone like Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on our generation, a person who called for kindness and who gave children great emotional support you know, for facing the issues that we have to face in life and how they, uh, how they impact us at a very young age. Mm -hmm. you know, I knew that was equally special to you and you know so it's it's so nice to, to have your input today and uh one of the things stephanie wanted to do here from the beginning is kind of just jump in and talk about some of our earliest impressions of uh fred rogers and mr rogers neighborhood and, and how that initially touched us and so since you're our guest we'd love you to roll it out oh yeah thanks um man it's it's hard to know really where to start with that because i i was very much raised in a in a pbs loving yeah. public broadcasting loving household uh, npr was was a frequent fixture on our radio and the local pbs station here in washington state when i was growing up was was on all the time so so my my memories of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and of Fred Rogers go back as far as my memory 
can span really. Mm. And, and my parents were always happy to have the show on when I was young because they knew that it was that kind of that ideal combination of things that you would want for your kid to be watching at a young impressionable age, two, three, four, five, six years old. They knew that the show was going to be positive. They knew that it was going to be intelligent and, and not dumbed down in any way. Um, they knew that Fred Rogers was going to celebrate the sort of uh, values in life that they were very much in tune with themselves. And, and I don't, I don't think that I've actually mentioned this to either of you guys. Uh, but my, my family felt a, a very direct connection with Mr. Rogers, because as, as you guys probably know, if you've watched the, the documentary on him, Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Mm -hmm. And so was my father. So I, I grew oh, wow. up yeah. as the son of a Presbyterian pastor. So there was always that little bit of a sense of, you know, he's part of my tribe, you know, he's, he <laughs> yeah. does the same thing that my dad. And, and as a kid, I didn't quite get that because in my mind, like if you were a Presbyterian pastor, my only point of reference was my dad. So like, does he go to church on Sundays and preach like dad does? Right. I, I, I didn't quite understand how you could be an ordained minister and not, be fronting a church you know what i mean right. but right. but it was something that i was aware of right from the get-go and mm -hmm. uh, and so that was a that was a very personal connection that i felt like i, f I felt like he was somehow a relative if you will mm -hmm. so so i guess to, to answer your question about what are my earliest impressions of the show i just remember watching it all the time and i remember mm -hmm. being enamored of his embraceive imagination Mm -hmm. And I remember being enamored of his embrace of curiosity, mm -hmm. you know, that he would always have segments on the show where, where he would visit different places and different people and learn about things. And he made it seem cool. <laughs> and I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. I think within the uh, Presbyterian church, he was a, uh the first person who was ordained with a ministry for television, which was pretty out there and progressive for the mm -hmm. Presbyterian church. That's, that's my understanding too. Yeah. To do something like that. That's well, the, the Presbyterian church is, is kind of famously uh, straight laced. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so and, and, so. and to be, to be blunt, you know, considered pretty boring. Uh, <laughs> Presbyterians uh, tend to refer to themselves as God's frozen chosen. So, <laughs> You know, like you said, to, to have somebody who was on TV on a regular basis was definitely, it, especially when it happened, uh, which was, I, I want to say the late 50s, early 60s, mm -hmm. that was super progressive because TV mm -hmm. was such a new medium, you know, yeah. in, the, in the broad sense of its impact on the culture. Well, you know, they tell us uh, the modern Mr. Rogers show, it ran from about 1968 to 2001 with interruptions and rerun sections as he would come back and do new segments. And before that, he had done a Mr. Rogers thing in Canada for a few years uh, before that. And then of course he had done a, a children's corner uh, show that he had been involved with uh, slightly before that. Mm -hmm. Myself as a Gen Xer, you know, I was born in 74, so you know, I have very early 
memories of uh, being four or five and my parents, their first television was a black and white uh, television that they had on like a little, uh, it was like, it, it, it's almost like something that you would bring into a living room to eat dinner on, you know, but they, they had the it old like, TV tray. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was similar to that. I don't know if that's what it was, but it was set. And that was where, you know, I would, I would catch my, uh, my afternoon cartoons or I would catch my, uh, my Sesame street and electric company and Mr. Rogers and the Mm -hmm. the typical little PBS block that those shows would all come from. But it was very much one of those things where it was a small black and white television set. And it was me basically sitting Indian style in front of that (laughs) in a, in a family room, taking that in for the first stuff. So that's, that's where it starts for me. Yeah, me and my brother both did the same. I have memories and even a couple of photographs of um, watching Sesame Street and then Mr. Rogers. And the electric company was a little bit more mature uh, for a (laughs) while for me. So I would stop watching after Mr. Rogers. Uh, And then as I got older, I would watch that whole like three block and then three, two, one contact came out at some point. Yes. Uh, and that joined the rotation. Um, but I, mostly it was uh, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, like, was the, the longest running thing. And I, you know, my brother was four years younger than me. He was still watching that block even after I got a little older and kind of lost interest. And I, uh, but I felt like connected to it all the time. Like, my earliest uh, childhood memory from Newport News, Virginia. So at some point when I was four years old or younger was having a cookie monster. So <laughs> there's, there's sure. the Sesame street part of it. Yeah. Um, so I must have been watching Mr. Rogers back then as well. Uh, I just don't quite remember it that far, far back, but yeah. Definitely. Did you ever see the episode where Mr. Rogers was on Sesame street? Yes. And Big Bird does a, a race. Did. It seems he's in a like race I with did. Snuffleupagus. And so Mr. <laughs> Rogers is going somewhere, but he's going to help keep time or whatever for the race. Mm-hmm. It was like my first like major crossover. I remember mine was blown. Right. They know each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. What? Same yeah. universe. Right. Uh so uh when we when we think about this, I think. I, I, I'm not going to speak for you guys, but I know we go through a, a phase when we're younger of embracing these things. And then you go through your teenage years and you're too cool for everything sure. during, <laughs> during that time frame. And, uh, you know, you know, it's one of those things like uh, Peter comes from the dance world. Is, uh, mm-hmm. He's a world-renowned Lindy Hop instructor. And mm-hmm. uh, you see, I, I threw in the world-renowned for you there. I appreciate that. And uh, one of the things you, you probably experienced too, you know, when the swing generation came back, we, you know, it was the zoot suits and it was the neo swing and it was the fun and it was the high-waisted pants and the color and the, the crazy ties and, and Hawaiian shirts. And, <laughs> and then there's, there was a period in the swing dancing world where everybody was very, it was either very vintage or they dressed a very specific way. And it, we were all very, poli- it was very political about what you were listening to and you wanted to be authentic and authentic yeah. this and authentic that. Yep. And it was almost like there was an embarrassment of the fun you had had yep. just five years previous. And to me, I was always, 
you know, being an adult is embracing all of that and saying, I had fun. And, you know, it was a different time and, Mm -hmm. and not denying that to other people, I think is always a key thing that I try to keep in mind that when someone else has joy about something, you know, the worst possible thing I could do would be to crush their joy. And I know uh, coming back from Mr. Rogers myself, it was almost like an embarrassment that I was like, of course, this has always been here. And I know in uh, Mm -hmm. 2019, when the documentary came out, I uh, I had snuck away one afternoon to see it at the Alamo Draft House. Oh yeah! And when you hit the credits end of that movie, mm-hmm. like and the lights came up slightly, it was just adults across the room bawling. Yep, mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> I don't for know sure. if you guys had any sort of similar experiences with that, but it was just ah. Well, I mean, I. I saw it in the theater too when it when oh. it came out, and I was I was kind of going through an extended rough patch in my life. I I had oh, actually sure. lost my dad a year or two mm. before, mm. and it and I grieved that hard for a long time. And oh. again, because of the association that I had come to form between, you know, Mister Rogers and my dad, given their shared profession and all that, yeah. uh, it was a very cathartic documentary for me to watch and Mm -hmm. i'm i'm not much of a of a crier in general even at times when i wish that i were because i know that it would be healthy for me to get some tears (laughs) out uh but that documentary definitely you know squeezed a few out of me here and there and Mm -hmm. uh and yeah it was it was a hugely like you say almost like a validating thing to come out of that and go oh yeah no he was actually he was way Mm -hmm. cooler and way more forward thinking uh than a lot of people gave him credit for because yeah. of his demeanor and his approach mm-hmm. underestimated well, I, even from my youngest years i got the sense that he was a very different person than anyone else i knew you know i couldn't put my finger on what it was that made him different other than the fact that he was he spoke softly um, he spoke slowly. He used simple words and phrases, and he showed love and kindness toward everyone on the show. There was no sense of conflict or sarcasm or, uh, you know, complication or drama. It was just this simple, pleasant conversation uh, right. constantly. But at the same time, he wasn't shying away from, you know, facing tough emotions. For sure. And he did that through the land of make-believe and the puppets. And he actually brought those conversations into the show and taught us as kids how to process those emotions. Uh, because our parents were certainly processing them. <laughs> right. This career happened at a key time in uh, yeah. child psychology because he was a uh, he was part of the University of Pittsburgh's uh, Graduate School of Child Development. And so this famous child psychologist, Margaret McFarland, she was like a 30-year uh, confident for him, reviewed scripts with him, reviewed lyrics that he was working on for songs. And that was all mm-hmm. part of like a group like that included Dr. Spock and, you know, all these these minds that became massive in terms of child development at that time mm-hmm. that he was right there as being part of that group. 
for uh, innovative and yet controversial at the same time. Right. Oh yeah, big time. Uh, and 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 continues to be because there's mm -hmm. there's still a very much a, a vein uh, in parenting, you know that still says you know the old ways are the best ways the way i was raised worked mm -hmm. for me so i'm going to do that to my kids too mm -hmm. which is odd because you know we we tend to not have that frame of mind in other arenas of our lives oh something we've we've learned something we've found a better way to do a thing let's embrace that thing uh, but i feel like people get very proprietary about child rearing so you know mm -hmm. as you say it was it was highly controversial the the approach that he was taking, the soft mm -hmm. spokenness, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and and as he said, Frank, he, he you know his membership, if you will, in that group of very cutting edge psychologists, plus at the same time being a part of the whole, you know, the children's television workshop mm -hmm. group that was so influential particularly on pbs because they were they were part of electric company and they were part of sesame street and they mm -hmm. were again all just radically different thinkers about how to approach educating children from from extremely young children through teenagers and mm -hmm. the the history of the, the ctw the children's television workshop uh is a jaw dropper. I heard a, a podcast a couple of years ago about them and about all the work that they did on, on Sesame Street and Electric Company. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is stunning just how far ahead of the curve they were and just how deep their influence was on our generation. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were... Uh, they were a bunch of badasses. Not to not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, if you can if you can say that about children's educators, they were definitely they were pushing boundaries in a big way. And it's it's one of those interesting circumstances where what they did changed the landscape so fundamentally from that moment forward that everything that has happened since then is is grown from the seeds that they planted. So it's hard to it's hard to understand just how radically different what they were doing was from the things that came before them. Mm -hmm. Because we were living it. And yeah. Yeah. the other, the other thing there too, you know, my wife's from a different culture and you pick up on these things every so often that at that time in the United States, it wasn't cool to talk about your feelings. You kept right. stuff locked down you did not like put that stuff out. You weren't public about it. A lot of fathers were very, you know, messed up in terms of being able to express themselves to their children well, about how they because felt. Because so many of them were were coming out of you know wars that they had fought. Yeah, you know, so stoicism was a thing. Well, it was big time, and uh, and you still see it in many cultures across the world today. So mm -hmm. they, a lot of them, feel like we'll just blab about everything. We'll, we'll talk about everything, everything that's wrong with us. And it's still, it's very stunning to, uh, but, you know, but there's this uh, push, not just to be, you know, self-actualized, but, uh, but to go ahead and process what you're feeling so that you can have a healthy growth with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to be able to discuss it and, and to work it out and to, to have those moments. Did, did you guys see the, uh, the Tom Hanks movie? 
I haven't seen it yet. I haven't oh, seen haven't it seen yet either. Yet. No, it's it's way <laughs> high on my list. I just have not yet. I think he does a good job of capturing the character. That's what I've heard. I think yeah. he does a good job. But it's uh, there, there's a great bit in in there where they're discussing death, and he mm-hmm. he brings up that you know dying is human, and and anything that is human, you know, is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable is manageable, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and he like, yep. yeah. you know, he's he's like, so you know, like you have to like feel comfortable. Sometimes you have to push yourself to to make that move. And it's just, uh, you know, it, it's so profound sometimes in its simplicity, you know that. And, and I wonder, you know, then you you can, you know, the the uh, the dime store English teacher can sit there and pontificate on if the 50s style of the house and setup that never changed, if that even reflects on that at all, you know, that, that, <laughs> con- that concept, because that was the world that did not tell you how they felt about things. Right. Mm. Yeah, moving, moving forward, and that becomes a, a, timeless, a timeless sort of thing. But, you know, also I think it's the idea of familiarity that, makes us all comfortable because he wasn't changing who he was on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Was, the setup was always the setup. It was always the intro, you know, the, the welcome, the switch right. from the jacket to the sweater, the comfy shoes, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's a, that's a, a frequently underestimated source of power is ritual and routine. Yeah. It, it's it's definitely a thing for me and and again i i could give you my own uh pseudo analysis of myself and that because <laughs> of my choice of career there's very little stability i'm always on the road i'm always in a different place and i'm always doing different mm. things so any sort of stability and ritual is something that i that i cling to very yeah. strongly but i honestly think that that's not just me i i think that we as humans like a sense of ritual and you know, as you said, Frankie, the, the fact that he basically had the same intro to his show for decades was hugely reassuring mm-hmm. to the viewers that you always knew he was going to come through the door singing the same song. He was going to do the same basic bit of changing his cardigan and changing his shoes. And you could you could just kind of let out a sigh of, OK, cool. I know where Mm -hmm. this is going. I may not know exactly what's going to happen in this episode, but I know who I'm with and I know how it's going to feel. And that's potent. That intro has some of the arguably most beloved smooth jazz since the Peanuts Christmas special. (laughs) Yes, sir. And a lot of the smooth jazz stuff that Dave Costa did on that show is that's the kind of jazz that I, I find is like good contemplative jazz. Mm-hmm. Like if you're working or just doing things and you want something that just kind of like fills your space, you know, and, and promotes thought, that's, it, it definitely does that. Yeah, it doesn't but interfere. It doesn't interfere. But what a songwriter Fred Rogers was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just a you know, we, we always talk about the child development stuff and we always talk about the way he made us feel, but what a songwriter the man was. And I mean, everyone has favorite Fred Rogers songs. I, I, I know mine. 
mine mine is definitely it's you i like yeah same mm. <laughs> in yeah. fact in fact uh when i was getting married uh we contemplated the Wynton Marsalis uh, cover of It's You I Like for first dance song. Nice. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't actually realize until I saw the documentary that he was, uh, that he could play piano at all, much mm-hmm. less that he could play piano at the, at the skill level that he had or that he was so deeply steeped. Yeah. Yeah, and there's... There's actually several albums, uh, jazz albums, where other artists have done beautiful covers of his work right. that are completely worth your time. Yeah. But uh, how about the relationship that we all have with the land of make-believe <laughs> and an affection for trolley cars now? <laughs> well, I have to start by saying one thing I really loved about that, the documentary that, uh, that we're talking about, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, was the use of Daniel Striped Tiger, mm, uh, the yeah. little animations that they yeah. used to symbolize Fred himself and the things yeah. he was doing in his life. Because yeah. uh, what his wife said in that documentary was, that Daniel was Fred. Right. Like that, you know, whenever you heard that particular puppet talking, you were getting about as close as possible to what Fred was thinking. The, the most direct alter ego. So, yeah. I thought that was wonderful. I mean, from an early age, and this comes a little from, I, I, I think he may have been my first uh voiceover artist <laughs> to a you know first person i was a fan of as a voiceover artist from the puppetry standpoint right um because of the fact that he changed his voice and yet i could recognize that it was him doing the voice even from right. a very young age <laughs> right distinctive yeah, yeah. And, but but as you said like still he was still able to create such fully formed characters yes. that each had such an individual literal voice. It's, yes. it's really an impressive tour de force. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Fred was never himself in make believe. It was mm-hmm. always the other, the other players or the, uh, or the guest stars. But yeah. Right. Yeah. And that always- again was a thing that I, I never quite, that never really struck me when I was a kid watching the show mm-hmm. that you would go to the land of make-believe, but Fred Rogers was not there. Right. Even though everybody else on the show could turn up yeah. and interact with the puppets. Yeah. He was never there. And I never really, that never really occurred to me until watching the documentary and they called it out specifically. And I thought, again, what a clever use of the medium. What a brilliant yeah. use of the medium. Yeah. Absolutely. From a storytelling perspective too, it's, it's the lab- mm-hmm. laboring of, uh, sorry, layering of uh, whatever point you're trying to get across because most modern stories, you'll have whatever the point is and you'll have like a macrocosm version of it and then you'll have like a microcosm version of it mm-hmm. that gets told to you and you're able, you're supposed to extrapolate from one 
what is the big arc that you're supposed to be learning for the for the greater problem and mm -hmm. uh and mr rogers did that like every episode exactly <laughs> it was like, like you, you have the point it's presented to you there's a discussion you're learning something you go to make believe you get this allegory you get this example you come back and it's related to you again in the real world somehow mm -hmm. you close mm -hmm. it out you know it's just boom 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 yep yeah and he asks questions about it too you know it's like as soon as the trolley comes back you know it's it's all about okay let's let's think about what just happened and and translate it into a conversation with you now right i i loved the i i think my favorite part would be when he took out the miniatures of the thing of the different parts of the set right uh and then it would instead of the trolley going you would just get that kind of like fade yeah from the miniatures to the land of make-believe yeah it's incredible <laughs> i i always love miniature things yep so. me too me too and again could probably trace part of that back to watching that show <laughs> yeah you know so great do you have a favorite character in the land of make-believe stuff uh i used to love ox the owl or x x the owl sorry x because it always fascinated me that there was actually x on the door like right <laughs> he was a cool and, looking puppet too yeah and uh i also looked forward to daniel striped tiger so yeah. um and the the lady elaine thing i think i was just fascinated with the roll the twirling yeah the carousel uh, thing carousel, and that was basically yeah. his sister he was basing the whole thing on his own sister <laughs> yeah. which is even great it, it's it's such a such a classic like sibling poke yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he managed to poke her for decades they <laughs> were so funny i'm sure she took it in stride <laughs> How about you, Peter? Uh, I'm I'm blanking on the name of the of the cat, not um, not Daniel's tribe tiger, but the other the, the other the meow meow meow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, um, oh, what's her name? Um, Hen yeah. Henrietta. Henrietta. Yeah. 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 And I yeah. and I couldn't tell you why because I know for a lot of people that that character's mannerisms and vocalizations is borderline annoying. Uh, maybe it's just maybe it's just I like cats, <laughs> so it never uh -huh. really never really bothered me. But yeah, I always kind of looked forward to Henrietta showing up. Yeah, I and you know it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that uh, why the cat was in the tree. Right. <laughs> good I bit. never made that connection of oh cats. Right. Climb oh, that's trees. Great. <laughs> I, that I was this year as old when that just occurred. Yeah. You mentioned it, so that's. Well, you know, the other things that are so weird, like with the adult actors, you know, like Mr. McFeely, uh, uh -huh. McFeely is apparently Fred Rogers' middle name. Yeah, it's his, it's his middle name, which was uh, actually his grandfather's name. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's mm. a family name. Neat. And what a warm, engaging actress was, was Lady Aberlane. I mean, yeah. yes. Yeah. You know, just, uh, just, all the emotion and, and being able, she was offered uh, one of the major horror movies mm -hmm. of the time that, you know, 
It was like she wouldn't be able to continue doing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood if she had done uh, that. Yeah, I mean, it would have ruined yeah. the the perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because of her loyalty, she turned it down. Yeah. Which, which you know, the I think if there's another th- big takeaway from the documentary, it's it's the deep affection that everyone who worked on the show had for him and for the very specific vision that he had for what he was doing even though you know there was a lot of you know there was quite a bit of shenanigans that went on behind the scenes and 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 that sort of thing they always kept it behind the scenes and there Mm -hmm. was a sense of this is fred's dream this is fred's uh ministry as they as they said on the documentary several times Mm -hmm. and we're all here to help further that it was really interesting yeah one of the things that didn't make it into that documentary that I find fascinating is that the Gen X Batman was also worked on staff with the Mr. Rogers show for a <laughs> while. Right. I think it was a couple of years. That's right. Michael Keaton. That's right. Yeah. So he, uh, so he had Batman getting him coffee. Yep. And, <laughs> and again, the, the, the little bit that I've read about, you know, Michael Keaton's reminiscences of his time on the show was his big takeaway was what was mind boggling was that Mr. Rogers was the same person yeah. off screen as he was on screen. There, there mm. was no character that he was putting on to pretend to be this kind, mm-hmm. thoughtful person who listened to you. That was, that was who he was. was All we had to do was turn on the cameras. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, that's why, uh, like, we repeatedly turn to him, you know, in times of difficulty and tragedy. Like, my mom, like, before we even talked about that we were going to record this podcast, my mom's been uh, struggling with with COVID. She contracted it from a neighbor uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's in her second week now of symptoms. She, she came down with all the symptoms except the breathing yeah. issues. Uh, and the, she just really sank deeper into depression. You know, being isolated is one thing. Being isolated and sick on top of that. Right. Uh, just, yeah, it's even worse. And so she, she actually started watching episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I gave her a sense of routine again, you know, going back to that routine, giving us comfort, giving us uh, something to, to kind of lift us up and and feel uh, like we can move forward. If there's a singular impact that I think uh, Fred Rogers has had on our generation, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the realization that you don't have to swim in negativity if you don't want to. Right. Mm -hmm. You can choose not to, you know, like in so many different ways, like when everything is bearing down on us and we, we see so much darkness, you know, we can choose to turn it off. We can choose to disengage from that. We can, we can choose to, to, to find something positive to look at, to, to uh, improve ourselves, be it with a different experience with music, with Mm -hmm. something we want to read with, uh, revisiting something that made us happy you know all those kind of uh activities you know that 
that, that affect our sense memory, you know, he was giving a daily training for us for a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I think if, if I could take that a step further, at least mm-hmm. my, my impression of part of the power of what Mr. Rogers did was to not only make it okay, as you said, to, to disengage, uh, from the things that are that are bringing you down or, or harming your soul or your heart but he also he also made it okay to engage with those things with kindness yeah and that's because that's a thing that's a thing that i've struggled with uh not to make this about me but that's a thing that i've struggled mm-hmm. with in my podcast is uh wanting it to be a place where people can escape the the endless stream of negativity in your newsfeed and in your social media without it being escapism you know what i mean right right. that that i still want to talk about things that i think are relevant or important but to talk about how they can be dealt with with positivity and kindness yeah you know that that i'm yeah I, I try to not, you know, we, we talk about this a lot these days. I try to not get myself into my own sociopolitical echo chamber where mm-hmm. I'm only surrounding myself with people who think the same things as I do and believe the same things as I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to still be able to engage with the people with whom I disagree without it descending into vitriol and name calling uh, yeah. and going to a dark place. And I, mm-hmm. I think that you know, again, in the, in the Fred Rogers documentary, they do such a fine job of showing how he was able to engage with, as we mentioned before, really difficult subjects, death, divorce, assassinations, war, huge subjects. And without running away from them, he was just able to deal with them head on and show ways where you could acknowledge them uh, sit with them and then move forward. And that's, mm-hmm. that is massively powerful Very because powerful. The, te- the temptation to, to bury my head in the sand is very strong, <laughs> uh, especially and considering how ubiquitous negativity is in our media these days. Mm-hmm. It's completely contradictory to the messages I was getting growing up of, you know, if you're angry, you know, get over it and get back to normal as quickly as possible. If you're sad, get over it, get back to normal as quickly as possible. There wasn't any encouragement to work through the reasons for those emotions or to actually experience those emotions in a healthy way. Um, There was just this get back to normal, you know, get back to stable. Everything's supposed to be happy thing. And, you know, Mr. Rogers was telling us it's okay to feel those emotions and actually giving us a protocol to follow. Like you're saying, you know, how do we deal with these things when we feel it? It is okay to feel and giving us permission to feel. That's part one of our podcast covering Mr. Rogers neighborhood with guest Peter Flahiff. Look for part two coming next Thursday and some bonus excerpts that I clipped from the main show coming this Sunday. 
be sure to add Peter's podcast, The Daily Good, to your playlist. You can follow Frankie Between Shows at DanceFrankieH on Twitter, as Frankie Hagen on Facebook, and at his dance instructor or real estate websites, DanceFrankie.com and FrankieHagen.com. You can follow me between shows at StephanieDoesVO on Twitter and Instagram. In the description for this episode, I'll include this info and lots of other fun links that we've talked about. Subscribe to the podcast and follow us at Gen X Replay on Twitter so you don't miss our next throwbacks and other fun episodes. And help us boost the signal on this podcast by sharing it with others. Until next episode, be safe out there.